The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The UK's vote for a hung parliament lumps yet more turmoil onto Brexit talks. Leverage buyout legend David Bonderman adds more fuel to Uber's toxic culture. And how is this for a solution to North Korea fears? Let China invade. These are the issues we'll be tackling in this edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and my colleague and co-host is Jennifer Sabre. But let's start where we left off last week with Britain's election. Prime Minister Theresa May's gamble of calling an early snap election to increase the Conservative Party's small majority in the House of Commons failed dismally. Instead, she's clinging to power only with the help of 10 seats held by Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party. That puts an unexpected spin on everything from Brexit negotiations to domestic policies on social welfare. Joining us to read the tea leaves are Global Economics Editor Peter Tal Larson. Welcome back, Peter. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. So before we get into the nitty gritty, tell us what happened. How did she go from what most polls are saying would be a 90 to 100 seat victory to having basically to run a minority government? I think the first answer is, sometimes the simplest answers are the, are the best ones. First answer is, she ran a really, really bad campaign. You know, when she uh, launched the election, you know, she was 20 percentage points ahead in the polls. And in the course of seven weeks, that lead entirely disappeared. So even though the Conservative Party, the Theresa May's Conservative Party did quite well in terms of the number of votes they got, they got 42 something percent of the vote. The Labour Party ran them pretty close, also got a very high number of votes. And that was the thing that surprised people. And when you look at the campaign, I mean, part of it was a question of style. Uh, she was uh, quite robotic. The, the joke was uh, in, in, in Westminster, where she was being known as the Maybot. She didn't really talk about a lot of detailed policies, but she repeated over and over again that she, you know, about delivering strong and stable government. Um, she made a couple of tactical mistakes. She avoided uh, debating her opponents face to face, which made her seem to be sort of a uh, uh, weak and, and kind of a bit scared of them. But I think the big turning point was she had a manifesto. Uh, each party publishes a manifesto as part of its campaign. And the Conservative Party manifesto included a provision about sort of paying for care for elderly people. Went down very badly, uh, was dubbed the dementia tax. And uh, within four days, they had to kind of reverse do a reverse ferret on that and change it around. Um, and that, again, sort of undermined this whole idea of her being strong and forthright and, and being the best person to go and negotiate for Britain over Brexit. So, Peter, just assuming that she uh, keeps her position for the moment and, and she is in a much weakened position, I, I still don't quite understand, and maybe you can explain this to me, how this changes Brexit and, and, and actually going through with leaving the European Union. I, I'm, I'm still unclear on why that, you know, son, somehow that's changed the equation, if it has. Um, well, that's a really good question, and I think a lot of people are scratching their heads about that. I mean, so the referendum result in 2016 was was bad enough in the sense that it gave a narrow mandate for leaving the European Union, but didn't really spell out in any way 
how that should be done. And there's, there's, I mean, as we've discussed many times, there's a wide range of potential outcomes in terms of leaving the union, which sort of need to be need to be agreed. And it's really not clear what people want. This election result, I mean, Theresa May tried to make it about Brexit and about her giving her a mandate to negotiate a Brexit agreement, but obviously she didn't get that. And the Labour Party really tried to avoid talking about Brexit entirely. So you're sort of in this situation where, once again, you, people, the politicians really don't have any idea what people want. The Conservative manifesto committed them to leaving the European Union. The Labour Party manifesto also said it accepts the results of the referendum, but was quite vague about, about sort of what that might involve in terms, of, in terms of the future direction. So things are really up in the air. And, of course, you still have in Westminster, in, in, in the Parliament, you, the majority of the, the, the members of Parliament are still actually kind of against the whole idea to begin with. So you're, having the, you're getting these noises from both parties in the centre, people who are saying, well, this changes everything, we're going to have to go for a much softer agreement, things that we thought were off the table are now back on the table. Uh, and meanwhile, you have, you have people like Emmanuel Macron, the newly elected president of France, saying, well, you know, if you want to change your mind, actually, we'd, we'd have you back in. It's okay, you can, you can change your mind as long as you do it reasonably soon. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think there is a possibility that we get some sort of consensus that forms for a softer Brexit and that, and that um, you know, you get some sort of cross-party agreement and, and parties get together and say, if you can deliver this kind of agreement, then we'll all vote for it and we'll remove this question about whether it might fail to, to, to get approval in the British Parliament. But I think there is also a possibility that with this kind of political gridlock, that you don't get any deal. And I mean, remember that Britain has triggered the Article 50 process, which is the two-year process at the end of which you leave the European Union. So if they do nothing, Britain will leave the European Union in March 2019. Yeah, so how much power does Britain really have, though, in this negotiating process? I mean, to me, it seems like it's mostly the EU has the upper hand. Is that true? Yes, the EU does have the upper hand. And I mean, the EU has an, an even stronger upper hand now because... You, you've basically, you know, you've seen a new French president elected who's, who's, you know, very pro-European and has taken quite a firm line on this. Um, we're expecting Angela Merkel to uh, to get re-elected uh, in September. Um, she will also have a fairly strong line on this. So the European position is fairly clear. It's really, it really comes down to like there are sort of menu of things that Britain can do. On on, on one extreme, there's staying in the single market, which solves various problems, but also means they have to agree to ongoing payments to the EU and things like that, and would also mean that they have to continue to allow European citizens to to come and uh, live and work in the UK, which was one of the big red lines from the referendum. And at the other extreme, obviously, there's a possibility that they walk away with no deal. So it really, it's, it's not, I think the, 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 the EU27 countries have got their negotiating position fairly clear at the moment. The real question is whether the UK can sort itself out and come to some sort of agreement about which of these options that are on the table it wants to take. Peter, what's, what's the chance that we don't even get that far? I mean, look, looking at the, the makeup of the House of Commons at the moment, you've got the Conservatives relying on the DUP, but the Conservatives also have a couple of rifts. Firstly, there are those who are very pro-Europe and those who are anti-Europe. Also, they, got a, they did pretty well in Scotland, where several um, Scottish Conservatives won seats from the Scottish Nationalist Party. Um, and they're seen as being, the Scottish Conservatives, as being rather more pro-Europe, I think, in general. So what's the chances that domestic, purely domestic issues could derail this government even before any European discussions really kick off? It's entirely possible. I mean, there is definitely a, the, the one possibility is that, you know, is that we have another election 
uh, fairly quickly in the autumn that the, the, uh, the government tries to get something through, uh, has, suffers a rebellion from within its own party or, or is unable to persuade others to support it and then and the government falls on, on that issue. I mean, I think uh, there are a couple of things mitigating, mitigating against that. The most immediate is sort of electoral self-preservation as far as the Conservatives is concerned. But, you know, in the meantime, the economic situation is getting worse. I mean, we saw this week that inflation in the UK has gone up to 2.9%, which is the highest level it's been for some time. Uh, meanwhile, wages are uh, really not growing very much at all. So people are suffering in terms of their spending power. You've seen some of this uncertainty about, about what's happening with, the, with, with Brexit uh, reflected in business investment. You see actually that European citizens, European workers are actually leaving the UK now because of the uncertainty. So all of these things are weighing on the economy. And the longer that goes on, actually, I think the more unhappy people are going to become about this whole situation. And the real question is who, they, who will they then punish? I think at the moment, probably, they're most likely to punish the Conservative Party. But, you know, they may well just decide that, you know, politicians in general haven't done this, they haven't done a very good job. So it's a tricky situation for these, for these parties to navigate. And, you know, the government could fall at any moment, but, but I don't think that would necessarily give us a, if we had another election, I don't think necessarily we'd have any clearer answers to this. And it would have taken up another couple of months, which could have been spent negotiating a Brexit deal. All right, Peter, it sounds like a, a fantastically torturous process everyone's going through over there. Thanks for walking us through it. And thanks for coming on the show. We'll speak to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Uber is all over the place. The ride-hailing app's drivers are near ubiquitous on the streets of many American and European cities. But the company's culture and leadership is in a mess. The latest is from board member David Bonderman, the chairman of private equity firm TPG. He resigned after making a sexist joke at the company meeting addressing charges of sexism. So joining us here is today in the studio is Rob Siren and Kate Duguid. They have come up to talk to us about this mess. So there's been a bunch of things going on with Uber in the past, my gosh, even a couple of days. I can't even keep track. So, Rob, why don't you kind of tick through what's been going on? So what happened was Uber had two investigations ongoing. This is after several months ago a female employee, a woman, complained that there was rampant sexism at the company. Um, that set off some investigations in Uber. This is this is at the same time. There's lots of other things at Uber, like mass employee defections. The company is losing money, of course. The government is probing whether they should file charges against the company for trying to evade regulators using software. But anyway, so what these investigations showed was that first they fired 20 employees for things like sexual harassment, um, being just awful people, um, other sorts of abusive behaviors. And then um, Eric Holder, he was the former attorney general, his law firm had a, an investigation to Uber. And they didn't release what the problems were, but they released what they thought Uber could do to solve these, uh, to fix their culture. And so there were, there were lots of different recommendations, everything from, you know, the very prosaic, such as executives should be held, should have performance reviews and should be held accountable uh, through financial, you know, withholding money if they don't do well, um, to kind of basic things such as the company should limit the use of alcohol and, and non-prescription drugs should not be used during company work hours. You know, the sorts of things that if you have to put those in a report, you're probably have got a problem with your culture anyway. And then what happened was that, so they had an all-company meeting to discuss what the findings of the report. And this is where uh, David Bonham, a board member, makes a joke. The company put another woman on the board 
And he said, oh, what's this going to lead to? It's just going to lead to lots more talking in the boardroom. And this is a public meeting in front, at, at, you know, in front of all the employees. It was in front of the employees, and someone was taping it, and the, it got out to the media. And then, of course, um, and then several hours later, David Bonderman apologized and stepped down. And, and he said this to an, a female board member, That's Ariana right, yeah. Huffington, mm-hmm. on top of it. Yeah. So, Kate, you've been following this as well. So just let's step back a bit. We forgot to mention this, but Travis uh, Kalanick is also taking a leave of absence. He's, you know, I think we could probably safely assume he's the issue and probably the chief guy who is in charge of culture and all this kind of stuff. So he's going to be gone for an indefinite amount of time. But meanwhile, Kate, you've been looking at Bonderman and sort of like this whole idea of what he said. And even if it's kind of a joke and it's a bad joke, it's not even a true joke. I mean, (laughs) there's so many things that's wrong with what came out of his mouth, including and possibly the worst part is the context of what he's when he said it. So, you know, you're looking at this and what does it say about TPG and what does it say kind of about broader board members, you know, that are kind of allowed to kind of you know go and serve on several different types of companies and that sort of thing. So Bonderman's comment is not just was not just a PR liability. It also suggested that he wasn't thinking about the problem at hand or understand how big of an issue it was. Is, is there a silver lining from, from at least the Bonderman episode? I mean, the one thing he did at least do was to um, resign from the board and apologize within hours. Uh, Travis Kalanick, the CEO, on the other hand, you know, he's had all these troubles mounting up behind him and he's taking in an indefinite leave of absence and isn't saying particularly who's taking over from him, which implies that there's still, an, I mean, beyond the Bonderman problem, that there is still a big issue at Uber of them not really responding to the issues properly and thinking properly about corporate governance, um, even though, as you said, Rob, in, the, in this 13-page document outlining what needs to be done, um, Holder has tried to give some recommendations. So isn't Bonderman at least giving them, in some respects, a, a path for what they should be doing in the face of adversity? Probably. Um, the problem for Uber is that there have been so many executive departures. For instance, they're trying to hire a COO. They're trying to... Uh, the senior head of engineering left, uh, the head of maps, the head of rideshare, um, the president. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think about half of senior executives have left. So the question is, if Kalanick steps down, who is actually running this company? And to say also, it, it, but then again, you know, he's saying he's stepping aside and he's letting his direct reports manage the company. Who are these people? And, and you know, how they're, the numbers have been dwindling. So I think in, in a way, Uber's kind of in an ugly situation because it's just it's unclear what they can do because there's already such mass turmoil that it may you know you, you don't necessarily want a uh, clinic running the company but you may want to ease them out slowly just to minimize chaos and what about I mean normally in these situations the board or someone on the board takes on a, a bigger role in a public company for example if the CEO is also the chairman he or she might have that the chairman's role stripped of them and someone on the board will take that role or even be parachuted in as interim CEO Obviously, what Bonderman said has taken over everyone's thinking, but is there is there a larger day-to-day role for someone on the board? And if there is, can anyone do it? Well, the problem is that uh, Kalanick has majority control. With these Silicon Valley tech companies, the way they're structured, he has majority of, of the board seats. He, there are several board seats which are empty. Kalanick can appoint members to them. So he has he has you know, majority control. Bonderman apparently was a voice against Kalanick in the past several months trying to, you know, restrain his influence on the company. So it's kind of telling, or it's kind of an awkward situation for the company. You have one person who is trying to restrain 
the bro culture, um, and he's the one who steps down. And that probably just indicates just how messed up the situation is at the company. Well, Bondemann was probably just talking too much in those meetings, I should think. You know, this should be a lesson, I think, for investors uh, in private and in public companies, that if you hand somebody unfettered control, as they have with Travis Kalanick, like you, this is going to come back to bite you in ways that, you know, this is a complete mess purely for this reason. There, How do you eject this guy? I don't even know how you do it. You really can't unless the business starts to completely tumble. Um, but even now, it's losing money. It's been losing money for, what, years since it started. So, you know, this kind of seems like an attractable problem. And yet we've seen companies going public. Snap is the latest example where everyone's like, okay, Evan Spiegel basically controls the company. He may not be a Travis Kalanick, but that's certainly a risk that he could turn into it or, you know, what, who knows what will happen. Well, the problem is with tech companies have a limited lifespan. You know, you can count back you know, 30 years ago how many tech giants of the day are still around, not many. So every time a new wave of technology comes around, the previous leaders tend to fizzle out and the companies undergo severe problems. Like look at IBM, for instance, going under them some now, Cisco. And do you really want, if that's the case, do you really want someone with complete control over the company who's not willing to say, like, sell it to someone who's willing to buy it at a premium? Or even willing to say, hey, let's stop drinking. Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> <on the laughs> or you know, like, what happens if, if a CEO has personal pro like severe personal problems in their life? You know, you can't kick them out for that. What if you know, there's just all these sorts of things. The problem with the benign dictator is that you don't, you're counting on them to be benign. They may not be, you know, today or in the future. So on that note, thank you both for coming up to talk about this. Thank you. Thanks. Now, on to our final segment, a frankly radical proposal from our Asia editor, Pete Sweeney. Would all our North Korea headaches be solved if China just invaded? Fellow editor Quentin Webb gets Pete to explain his thinking in this segment from Hong Kong. I'm Quentin Webb, the Asia financial editor for Reuters Breaking Views. I'm here chatting with Asia editor Pete Sweeney. Pete seems to have got a bit frustrated with North Korea and with Donald Trump. And I think he's now suggesting that China should maybe invade to sort things out or anyway, something like that. Pete, can you give us a better summary? Well, yeah. So this I know this sounds like a radical proposal and in a way it is, but it is kind of a way for, for us to start thinking in a different way a little bit about why, you know, things have gone so badly for pretty much everybody, you know, um, negotiating with North Korea, and that includes China. You know, the problem so far has been that, you know, right now the narrative is that, at least in the States, that, you know, China is just not getting on board, you know, in terms of leaning on this regime. And if only they would implement these these radical sanctions and, you know, freeze out Chinese banks and from doing business with North Korea and otherwise kind of crack down, everything would be fine. The problem is if you look at it from China's perspective, that's a kind of a tough sale. Um, for one thing, any sort of crackdown in this area uh, economically could produce a flood of refugees flowing into northeast China's Rust Belt. Um, this is an area where China is busy trying to figure out what to do with millions of you know, underutilized or laid off steel workers, um, that sort of thing. It's really not in the position to absorb a big flood of you know, underemployed, uh, desperate North Koreans, including, you know, North Korean soldiers who are already crossing the border and causing trouble. 
The other thing is that China really doesn't want any sort of reunification of the peninsula under the control of South Korea if that means giving the U.S. military direct access to, access to the Chinese border. You know, China fought a big war, you know, under, under the argument, at least, and the propaganda that they were fighting off an American invasion. They just can't put up with it. So China's intransigence on this issue is difficult to get around. And, and you know, one way to, to address it, you know, is to change the way that China itself approaches North Korea and, and, and have this kind of third way. And that's kind of what I was, I was proposing. So what would the third way look like? Well, the third way would look like China taking a more activist approach and a more interventionist approach in North Korea, uh, possibly an uglier, more aggressive militarily or under, underhanded coup-style approach, the sort of thing that you know, is not very popular, the sort of thing that the U.S. engineered in, you know, in Iraq, uh, in, in Iran, um, you know, these, this sort of very unpopular approach. But, you know, China does not have a lot of good options here. A lot of people say that, that North Korea is this client state, a puppet government that, that China can control. In fact, the North Korea routinely ignores what China tells it to do and causes a lot of trouble. Um, this government has tested nuclear weapons during the Chinese New Year. It's tested ballistic missiles um, when China was holding its One Belt, One Road forum in Beijing. China would much rather do business with South Korea um, than North Korea. It did about $85 billion worth of trade with South Korea in the first four months of the year. It imported more from South Korea than any other you know, country. North Korea is an economic insignificant. It's a blip. It was like $1.6 in total trade. Um, a lot of that may or may not have been Chinese donations of oil and whatnot that, that, that North Korea never actually paid for. So this is a huge headache for China, and it's a risk. Um, Fifty years from now, who knows what this regime is going to want to do vis-a-vis China. And, you know, by simply sitting back and being passive about it, you know, and, and, or by doing what it's doing now, which is kind of trying to play both ends against the middle, you know, there's a real downside risk for China. Either the U.S. has to go in because the North Korea does something extremely proactive, like attacking um, South Korea overtly, or you know, North Korea destabilizes and collapses. So, so China's endgame here is unclear, and I'm just kind of suggesting one alternative that could change the, the chemistry of the negotiations, as it were. Is there not a case to be made that China is already tightening the screws on North Korea? If one looks at the import and export data, it does seem to be the case that they're already putting some pressure on the regime. Why has that not been sufficient? Well, that's true. Um, imports are down. Um, imp- imports from North Korea into China are down, and that presumably is applying some pressure to the hard currency that North Korea needs to buy things. Uh, it's very difficult to measure how much pressure this is actually applying, given all the other ways that China can fund North Korea, including donating things, um, you know, donating energy that can be resold elsewhere. And the North Korean state is also heavily engaged in black market activities, uh, you know, other nefarious ways, counterfeiting. So who knows how much pressure is actually being applied. What is clear is that this has not had an effect yet. North Korea is still very much acting up, being provocative, testing missiles, um, testing Scud missiles that could hit Beijing just as easily as they could hit Tokyo. So whatever China is doing pressure-wise, North Korea is not acting like it's feeling the squeeze. But again, it all comes back to, at a certain point, China applies so much economic pressure that the North Korean economy collapses, and China has a problem. So it's, it's unrealistic for the United States or any negotiating partner to expect China to apply so much pressure you know, that, that the situation destabilizes. And it's very difficult to target this just to the North Korean government. I mean, these, these sorts of economic effects will ripple down into a, a relatively poor population 
you know, and, and that's risky. Let's talk about the economics because you also float this interesting idea about how North Korea, with new leadership or guidance, could take a more Chinese approach to development. What would that look like? Sure. Well, in some ways, what when, when Chinese people look at North Korea, they see their own country under Mao Zedong um, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, particularly the, the Mao era during the Cultural Revolution, um, where this kind of radical leftist program was applied that wrecked the economy, um, you know, collectivization of agriculture, this giant disaster, um, you know, the Great Leap Forward, where millions of people starved to death. Um, so in North Korea's case, is similar in some ways. You've got this kind of iconic leader advocating some extremely strange economic policies. Um, in theory, what you can do is you, you have, you know, the North Korean reform and opening movement. This person comes in, leaves up the posters of the Kim family because you don't want to start a civil war. You leave up the iconography that all these people are propaganda. I mean, keeping in mind that the Kims, if anything, the Kim dynasty is even more revered in North Korea than Mao is in China, which is saying something. Um, these are these are demigods. You can't just kind of shred them. But you can leave up the posters. And you can just change all the economic policies. You know, North Korea is between China and South Korea. Just by opening it up and loosening up private property and infrastructure, you know, you could create these massive trade flows. Um, the North Korean population currently is half of South Korea's. You know, a birth boom, productivity explosions, all this could trickle down. You know, if you look at applying... Since, since the reform movement, the Chinese economy has grown an average of like 10% a year. If you apply that a rate to North Korea, if you had like this, this kind of reform and opening starting now, you know, in about four decades, you'd have a 1. 1.7, 1.5, 1.7 trillion so or so economy. That's not bad. Never could do business with it. So there is this kind of trading opportunity, and it would be easier for China to implement this sort of policy than, say, the United States, an American occupying force, any sort of approach like the U.S. took in, in Iraq would be absolutely disastrous in North Korea. The U.S. could never do it. And for South Korea, that's a lot for them to bite off. I mean, keeping in mind the experience that West Germany had trying to absorb East Germany, well, you know, South Korea is going to, of course, politically say we, we love unification and, and we want to, and of course they do, but it'd be much easier to have some sort of unification once the, the country is kind of forcefully brought, brought up economically to some form of parity. And, you know, China could realistically do this. I mean, I'm no fan of the Chinese governance model, but I don't think anybody would rather do business with the current regime in Pyongyang than with China. China has a lot of successes for it. It's, it's got a common commonality of interest with the United States that has kind of kept the peace. Um, it's not a beautiful relationship, but it would be an improvement, I think. Pyongyang as the next Shenzhen. You heard it here first. Pete Sweeney, <laughs> thanks very much. Thanks, Gwen. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Jen Saber and Quentin Webb, as well as our guests, Kate Duguid, Rob Siren, Peter Tal Larson, and Peter Sweeney. Our producers this week are Bethel Habti and Andrew D'Antonio, and I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. We'd love to hear them. We're back next week. Thanks again for joining us.